Well, I've told you this um, before. Let's see if you can remember why I got more spanks than my brother. Um, the time, you know, our house overlooked a freeway. And there was an embankment and there was a freeway. And so uh, one day we were throwing rocks uh, into the freeway, trying to hit cars. You know, you have to time it perfectly so that as the car is speeding, you got to get the velocity exactly right with the arc so that it lands right on the car's uh, roof as it's going. Otherwise, you don't want it to land in front of the car because then it might swerve and there might be an accident or whatever. But if you land it on the car, it's perfectly safe. Well, so I told my brother. Um, to be fair, he remembers the story a little differently, but uh, this is what happened. Uh, he was five years old, I was ten years old, and we were throwing these rocks into the freeway and the uh, car started you know, honking loudly, and my dad came out and caught us. And so, of course, there was a lot of punishment that went on that day. Um, the most memorable of all was that I had to go two weeks without watching television, which is just, just cruel and unusual punishment for a kid. But um, two weeks with no television. My, my brother only had one week with no television. I think he got something like five spanks, and I got something like ten spanks. And I thought that this was highly unfair because we threw the exact same number of rocks at the cars. Why didn't we get into the same amount of trouble? And, and what was the reason? This is what my dad said. Well, because you're twice as old, and so you should have known better. That's all he said. You should have known better. It's like, yes, he got spanks for what he did wrong, but you get more because you, sh you knew more. You, you knew how bad this was. And so that was my first introduction to the doctrine of degrees of punishment, which we will look at tonight in Luke chapter 10, where the doctrine of degrees of, of punishment is mentioned. Um, and a lot of people don't really think about this. You know, they, maybe you've heard this question like, does my sweet elderly Buddhist neighbor have the same punishment when they die if they reject Christ as Adolf Hitler? Uh, surely the, their lives deserve different punishment, and, and often people say, well, no, everybody, you know, everybody's punishment's the same, and it's all deserved, but actually the Bible teaches that there's different degrees of punishment. Um, and so in Luke chapter 11, if you remember where we are, Jesus had sent out his 72 evangelists ahead of him into various towns, and they were um, preaching and doing miracles and preparing the way for Jesus to come. Jesus told them specifically to rely on the people that they're ministering to. This would be a way of making sure that they were humble and that they were presenting this gospel from, uh, from the humility. And then also he said, if they reject you and your message, then knock the dust off your sandals and just leave the town, and, but warn them, warn them about um, the danger that would come. And then from there, Jesus goes off on this little tangent in which he just gives us a really rich insight into this concept of degrees of punishment. So let me just read for you from verse 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 10. Uh, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And then he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon 
than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And that's as far as we'll get this evening. We're going to look at three lessons that we learn from these warnings of judgment to help us evangelize. Just the three things that you need to know when you're evangelizing people. One is you need to realize there are levels of judgment or degrees of punishment. Um, Secondly, remind people of the judgment. That's part of our evangelism is we have to remind people of that. And thirdly, you yourself respond to the revelation of judgment. So, firstly, realize there are levels of judgment. If you look at verse 12, he says, it'll be more bearable. Notice the comparative there. More bearable on that day. The phrase that day is referring to judgment day, which is picked up again later and called at the judgment. For Sodom, then for that town. So the idea is that if you go to a town and the town rejects you, punishment will come upon that town. There'll be on the day of judgment, this town, the population of the town will be judged in the same way that the population of the town of Sodom was judged, but specifically, he says, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom. So the judgment day for the town of Sodom and the judgment day for the town of Bethsaida and Chorazin is the same day. There's one judgment day. There's one, you don't want to call it a day like a 24-hour period, but like one season of judgment, one age of judgment, a day of judgment that's coming. Now, Sodom, you'll remember from Genesis 18 and 20, what's its sister city? You know that, Sodom and? Gomorrah, yeah. So these, they were just, they're always mentioned together because they're found right next to each other. So they're kind of like the twin cities. They're sort of blended into each other at times. Here Jesus speaking about one of them. In Genesis 18 and 19, we find out that this, there was this city, Sodom, that was particularly wicked. It was widely known, especially for its sexual immorality and especially for homosexuality, which is why... Um, the act of homosexuality is called sodomy to this day because it comes from the name of that town, Sodom. And so it was just a very wicked town. Uh, Genesis 18 and 19 tells us that the population was so perverse that when angels came to the town to communicate with Lot, the angels that were apparently, you know, whenever we see an angel in Scripture, they look like a male human, Um, apparently these angels were attractive-looking men, is how they looked, because all of the homosexuals in the town dropped what they were doing and tried to rape these angels. And the angels had to use supernatural power to blind them, to strike them blind. And you would think that when a person struck blind, that they would have new priorities, like, oh my goodness. But these people kept on feeling around in the house trying to find them to try to continue with the assault, even though they'd been struck blind. That's how desperately wicked this town was and God warned Lot that he was going to destroy the whole town and remember this is where Abraham says to God um, would, you, would you kill just everybody even the righteous people in the town what if there were 50 righteous people and God says if there's 50 righteous people I won't destroy it and he's like okay well what if there's 40 <laughs> you know? and then he goes all the way down to what if there were just 10 righteous people in this massive city would you still destroy the whole city and, and take out these innocent people? And God said, even if there were 10 people in the city, I would not destroy the whole city. 
That's how perverse the city is, that, that there were not even 10 people that deserved to escape the punishment. There were only six, in fact, and instead of sparing the whole city, God just told those six to leave, and, and they did, and then he rained fire and brimstone down on that city. So you can imagine how wicked those people must have been to get that punishment. And so what is it going to be like on the day of judgment for those people? I mean, you've got to be pretty bad for God to want to kill you and everyone that you know because they're all that bad. And then Jesus says, judgment day is going to be better for them than it is for this town that rejects you. That's, that's pretty intense, right? I tell you, it'll be more bearable, verse 12 says, on that day of final judgment for Sodom than for that town that rejects the gospel. What we learn from this is that rejecting the gospel puts you in a worse predicament than the perversion of Sodom. So yes, there are different degrees of sin. There are different degrees of punishment. I remember once having a conversation with a, I was a new believer and I was in college and I was trying to help counsel a fellow college student and trying to share the gospel with them and I know they were planning to have immoral relationship with their girlfriend and I got to the point where I was like saying you know how lust is a sin and then the guy said this to me he said well if lust is a sin and I've already committed that sin I might as well then do the rest of the deed because I've already sinned if you're saying that lust is just as bad as fornication well I've already done lust so I might as well do the fornication and I was just stumped I was like yeah that makes sense but it can't be right <laughs> surely that's not what the bible says and I, I don't know what the bible says about this but but later I, I grew to realize that no there's there's huge differences in types of sin you can't say that you know as bad as gossip is and as hurtful as gossip is it's not as bad as murdering somebody right i mean there's just something in us that we just know that well, here we have evidence of that. Jesus is saying, yes, there was this absolute perversion that w was as, as wicked as anything that you could imagine, and yet there's something even worse than that, and that's what this town is doing, rejecting the gospel. More bearable. So if you look at chapter 12, just go over a couple of chapters. Jesus is, we're, we're soon going to get into the parables, and we're going to get to this Good Samaritan in a couple of weeks. But in chapter 12, there's a parable, uh, verse 47. So it, it's a parable of being ready, and it's about a manager uh, who's left in charge of other slaves and other servants that he's supposed to um, manage. And look at verse 45. Um, if that servant says to himself, well, my master is delayed in coming and begins to... He begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready 
or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required, and from him to whom they were entrusted much, they will demand more. Isn't that interesting? So even in, in the middle of the story that Jesus is telling of when the master comes back, if you're a bad steward and you're not doing what you're meant to do, you will be punished for that. That's something we can apply to any kind of stewardship that Christ has entrusted to us as, as humans. The stewardship of the planet, the stewardship of the animals, the stewardship of our money, the stewardship of our relationships, the stewardship of our children, the stewardship of the buildings that he gives us, of the health that we have, the stewardship of our body. So stewardship is, is a responsibility that people are entrusted with, and we all respond to that responsibility at different levels. And you can be a bad steward of your body, and then you can be a really bad steward of your body. Uh, you can be a bad steward of uh, your house. You know, maybe it's leaking and you don't fix the leaking or whatever. Maybe you can be a really bad steward of the house and you actually just trash the place. Let's say, you know, you're a renter and you're supposed to be looking after the place, but you're like, well, I don't own the thing. I'm just entrusted with it for a time. So you just let it, you know, you just trash the place and graffiti it. There's two different levels there. There's one of slight neglect and there's one of great neglect. And Jesus says in this parable, there's the, the, if a servant knew what his master's will was and did something deserving a beating, and there's a guy that doesn't know what his master's will is and does the same thing that's deserving of a beating, they will both get beatings, but one will be a severe one and one will be a light one. So you get again this picture of degrees of punishment and in that parable, in verse 47, I'll read, I'll read that verse again. Tell me what you can tell what you think makes the person more culpable for a worse beating. Verse 7. That servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready, etc. Verse 28. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating. So you can see that knowledge plays a part in accountability. Knowledge plays a part in culpability. Getting back to my, you know, throwing stones at the cars on the freeway, my brother and I did the exact same crime, but I got a more severe punishment for it because I knew better. Well, I should have known better as a 10-year-old. I should have known more than the 5-year-old that this was dangerous and irresponsible and deserving of a beating, a severe beating versus a light beating, right? Um, it's knowledge. So can you see, what is the difference between Sodom, that was unimaginably wicked, and these towns that, God, that Jesus is warning the disciples about, that, let's face it, was probably not as wicked as Sodom as far as their perversion. Sodom was particularly perverse. And yet, it's worse for those towns. Why? Because they knew more. What did they know more? Well, the people in Sodom have, at the very most, Genesis 1 to 18, you know? Um, I say that facetiously. They didn't have the Bible yet, but they only had the history of God's dealing with people up to that point, very early in human history. So the people in these towns have all of the Old Testament revelation and of the prophets, everything that they know about God, Plus, they have what Jesus Christ himself has revealed to them by sending these disciples, proclaiming that the kingdom is here, proclaiming 
who Jesus is, doing miracles, seeing the power of God, and still rejecting Jesus. Can you see how much more they knew? Isn't it terrifying how much more we know? We know so much more than those towns. They had the Old Testament scriptures and they, they heard the gospel and saw the miracles, but we have the report of all of those miracles. We have all of the theology of who this person is, Jesus Christ, unpacked in the epistles. We have the prediction of the apocalypse, of John's revelation. We have all of that, plus we have all of church history fleshing out all of this, plus you have all the sermons you've ever heard, all the books you've ever read. You've got the whole Bible in your language, on your lap, on your bookshelves, in your phone. You've got at your disposal all the commentaries of all the wisest people in the world that have written everything that they know about Scripture. (laughs) How bad is it going to be for you if you reject the gospel? If you neglect to read the Bible, you neglect to read those books, you neglect to listen to sermons, you neglect to apply it, you neglect to show up on Sunday, you, you have that opportunity. You live in a country where it's, it's encouraged even to go to church, let alone prohibited. Compare that to our brothers and sisters who have to you know, crawl through the forest at night so that they can meet a small group of believers and uh, you know, one of the countries. I was privileged to go and minister in, these believers didn't even have the Bible in their own language. And they're meeting in a forest, singing quietly so that the authorities can't hear their voices carry, reading a Bible that's in a different language. And, and we have so much more. Hebrews chapter 10 says something similar. Um, very chilling words. Hebrews 10, 28 Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? It's kind of a strange, heavy section there, but what he's saying is, the the writer of Hebrews, his argument is that an unbeliever who rejects Yahweh in the days of Moses, knowing only the law of Moses, deserves eternal punishment and will get it. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has the knowledge of the Son of God and spurns him, rejects Jesus? So, if you're taking notes, that's Hebrews 10, 28 and 29. Yes, people who reject God get the punishment they deserve, but how much worse do you think the punishment is if you have the revelation of Jesus Christ and then still reject him? And the implication is much worse. That's how much worse. So when you're evangelizing, if you, if you were one of the 72 evangelists sent out, you need to remember and realize that the stakes are high. And they what you know is already too much. You know too much. There's no going back now. If you've even heard the sermon, you know too much. So you have a responsibility to respond. So realize there are levels of judgment. Secondly, another lesson we learn here is remind people of judgment. Verse 13, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Uh, to pronounce a woe was like a... I mean, you know what it is. It's like, to say... 
it's like a cursing, you know, it's like a warning. Um, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it'll be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. So Jesus goes off on this tirade here, and he's saying, woe to you, these two towns, Chorazin and Bethsaida, and he compares them to Tyre and Sidon. Now, like Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon were just known as capitals of pagan places. So pagan cities, obviously they're going to get judged on the judgment day because they reject God, they reject Jesus. But here he's saying, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works in you, mighty works done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, those pagan cities, if they had received the revelation that you have received, if they knew what you knew, if they had seen what you saw, they would have repented. They would be, they would be in dust and ashes on the ground, begging for mercy. You just saw it and you rejected the evangelists. And then he compares Capernaum as well. You want to go up to heaven? You're not going to go up to heaven. You're going to go down to hell. So what's valuable for us to learn is we see Jesus. I mean, we come to church, we want to be, be like Jesus. That's why we're here, right? We want to learn about him. Well, one of the things we learn about Jesus is that he warned people. He told him the bad news. This is not a pleasant message, but he didn't keep it from them. Do you think Capernaum liked hearing that they were going to go to hell? That they were worse off than Sidon? But Jesus isn't interested in making people happy, keeping the relationship copacetic. He's interested in warning them of the danger they're actually in. This is a very important lesson for us in this day and age because there's so many like liberal churches, political correctness, tolerance of all beliefs. It's considered very rude and unfashionable for you to point out that people might actually be wrong in what they believe. A few years ago, Rob Bell's book was super popular, Love Wins. Remember Rob Bell? He started off as a pastor, like a famous pastor in sort of the, the Mars Hill world and then I mean then he wrote Love Wins and everyone was like wait a minute that doesn't sound like the Bible um, it, was, it was a very popular book and it was very highly um, well, well received he says this in the preface on page 6 a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful joyous place called heaven while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. This is, hold on, let me, before I tell you what he says about this, so he's saying, lots of people have been taught that Christians go to heaven, and lots of people end up in hell, and there's no way out of it, and then he says this about that doctrine. This is misguided and toxic, and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. Unquote. He makes it sound like it's unreasonable to believe in hell. 
He makes it sound like that's an unloving thing to do. The, the message of Jesus, the message of love and joy and what does he call it here? Um, love and peace and forgiveness and joy that our world desperately needs. That's the message we have, the gospel. He says that it subverts it, that it works against it, the spread of this gospel. So what works against the spread of the gospel? Giving people this misguided, toxic information that there's the possibility that some people go to heaven and some people go to hell. Which is what the Bible says. So do you think the, the message of the Bible is subverting the gospel of the Bible? That doesn't make any sense at all. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. You can't read the Bible and not believe in hell. I don't believe in hell because I like the doctrine. It makes me shudder. I believe it because it's what Jesus says is true. Like it or not. Do you know that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven? That's really strange. I mean, if you, if you met a Christian who spoke about hell more than heaven, wouldn't you think the guy's a little bit of a downer? <laughs> But that was Jesus. Because Jesus knew about, him, about hell. And he knew that it's a powerful way to mobilize people and incentivize people to do business with God and to think about their eternity. I'm sure you've heard testimonies, baptism testimonies of people who heard sermons on hell and were afraid and therefore, you know, especially with kids, people are like, well, don't, don't tell kids about hell. It'll make them scared. Good. Good, they must be scared. You should be scared too. The difference between a kid and a grown-up being scared of hell is that the kid will probably act on it and the grown-up will think, well, I just mustn't be afraid. No, you must be afraid. And then kids get saved because they run to Jesus because they're afraid of hell. And if, if, if a little kid ever comes to you and says, I'm afraid of hell, don't say, don't worry, you won't go to hell. Yes, you will. Yeah, everybody goes to hell. Unless they're saved by Jesus. No, what you tell them is, don't worry, there's a Savior. And if you're afraid of hell, just run to the Savior, and He promises He'll save you. That's the good news. The bad news is what makes the good news so good. Why would you want to strip the Bible of the bad news? It's kind of like when a Jehovah's Witness tries to evangelize a Christian. They're like... Well, you can't go to heaven because only 144,000 people go to heaven and you're not going to be one of them. I'm not even one of them. And you don't go to hell because Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in hell. So, why would I want to become a Jehovah's Witness? I can't go to heaven, I can't go to hell. It's like, whatever I'm doing, I'm just going to end up where I'm going to go anyway. No, they, they believe you get annihilated, you just like disappear, or you get to live on earth. Well, how about you just stick to what the Bible says? It says, no, you get to live with Jesus forever in heaven. Or you reject Jesus, and how much worse punishment for those of you who know Jesus than anyone else has been punished? Woe to you, Chorazin. But there's something else about this verse that's just pretty cool. Um, Look what he says in verse 13. What do you, Corson, what do you, Bethsaida, for? And here's an if, a conditional statement. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sida, 
they would have repented long ago. So think about what Jesus is saying. If this had happened, which it didn't, this other thing would have happened. You see, here we see a glimpse of the omniscience of God in Christ playing out in something that to me is very fascinating. The concept of contingent knowledge. So, so God knows, not, God is, he knows, when we say God knows everything, we're like, yeah, of course, God knows everything, you know, every name in the phone book or whatever. No, no, no. When I say God knows everything, think about it. He knows everything that ever has happened. He knows everything that is happening. He knows everything that will happen. And here's the part we usually forget to add. He knows everything that could have happened. And he knows everything that could happen. And you're saying, so what? Well, think about it. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Maybe I married the wrong person. What if I had married this other person? What if I had not said no to that promotion? What if I had chosen to do this instead of that? What if I had gone left on the way to work instead of right on the way to work? Would I have got into that car accident? What if I had, you know, if you've ever asked that question, what if I had done things differently, would my life have turned out differently? And the answer is yes, but God didn't want that. Everything that possibly could have happened, he knows and prevented it from happening so that what did happen, happened because he's in charge of everything. So I find that very encouraging. Because there have been times in my life where I'm like, man, if only I had done that, then I wouldn't be in this situation. Maybe that's true. But that reality is one that God knew and analyzed and rejected for me. Because Jesus says, I know something about these towns. This isn't hypothetical. I'm telling you. If Tyre and Sidon saw that miracle, they, the whole town, would have repented. But I didn't want them to repent. That's why I didn't show them that miracle. Interesting. Contingent reality. So trust God that knows, God knows what's best for you. <laughs> and he always makes it happen. Okay, and our third lesson we learn here is respond to the revelation of judgment. So realize there's levels of judgment. Remind people of judgment and respond to the revelation of judgment. Verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you, you disciples, rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. I mean, this is something we as Christians know. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. That's what he's saying here. If you reject Jesus, you don't get... God. To reject Jesus Christ is to reject God. Because some people talk about how, well, there's one God, and there's many ways to God. You know, the Muslims go the Muslim way to God, and the Buddhists go the Buddhist way to God, or whatever, and, and Christians go the Christian way to God. No, the Christian way to God is the only way to God. That's what Jesus said. I mean, he might be wrong, in which case we're all wrong, but I don't think so. 
Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that I am here, I am the bottleneck. You have to go through me to get to the Father. And here, he tells these disciples that the ones who reject me reject him who sent me. He's not an optional extra. You accept Jesus or you, you, don't, go, you don't go to heaven. But the, the brief point I wanted to make here was that if someone gets upset with you in preaching the gospel, don't take it personally. They're not rejecting you. I know it feels like they're rejecting you because you're the one that's being rejected in the moment. But it's not you. They're rejecting Jesus. That's what he says. The one who hears me, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So if you preach the gospel and they reject you, they're rejecting Jesus and they're rejecting God who sent him. So just be encouraged by that. Your job is to be the messenger. Your job is to be faithful. All of us sitting here today know more Bible, more theology, more truth, more gospel good news than anyone you read about in Scripture. Even the prophets. They wrote things that they longed to look into. They didn't understand. The angels longed to look into it. We, we have it all. Some of it's hard to understand. We long to look into it too. But we know more than anyone that you read about in Scripture. Except Jesus. So how much accountability do you think we have? What do you think the judgment would be if we reject Jesus? So we need to believe. We need to preach to others. Today is the day of salvation. Because you already know too much to have an excuse. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, um, it really is a sober reminder uh, to hear of what our Lord said to those evangelists. Uh, really one of the most chilling messages, messages he ever gave. That there is degrees of punishment and the more we know, the more we are liable for what we know. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be good stewards of what you've taught us. Good stewards of the gospel good stewards of the access to the knowledge of Christ that we have in Scripture. I pray that you help us to make use of that and then also that you would give us opportunity and boldness to share it with others. And we pray that you would grant us fruit in our ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've been asked very nicely the past few weeks by the people who work in the nursery with the kids to try to finish by seven because that's the time they all turn into gremlins and try to kill the people. So um, that's why we're ending a little earlier tonight, but now we still have 15 minutes uh, before seven. So Q&A, any questions? Any questions about degrees of reward? Yes, William and, and then Logan.
Yeah, I usually use those exact words. Um, <laughs> so just to repeat, what William's saying is, you know, when, when there's somebody that you know, especially somebody that you love um, who is indifferent to the things of the Lord, um, who knows truth and rejecting it, um, or maybe even doesn't know the truth, but you, you know the truth and you have an opportunity to speak to them, um, how, do you, how do you do that, especially when um, if there's a person he's talking about counseling you know sometimes yeah sometimes somebody will come in for counseling and they'll tell you their issue or whatever it is and you you have you can't just be you can't say man you're completely off the (laughs) off the rails there like this is isn't it obvious how stupid you're being like you can't say that you shouldn't even think it really um but I have found, and I, let, let me first say, so you're asking in my life how I handle it. Let me first just admit up front, this is not a great strength of mine. Um, I think my, my strength would be I like telling people the truth. My weakness would be I don't always say it in the way that they receive it the best. I, I love being counseled by or seeing people counsel who are just extremely gracious. And if you're just very gracious and very wise with your words and very humble and very patient, you can tell the same truth in a way that's so much more effective than the way I do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of like, ooh, 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 I know the answer to this. Let me flip to the verse and, sh- and show you. Look, here it says you're a fool for doing this. The, the Proverbs call you a fool in four different verses. Let me find them for you. And I look up at the person and they're, they're like crying. And I'm like, what? I thought this is good news. We found the answer to why you're a fool and how to fix it, you know? I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit, but if any of you have come to me for counsel, you know I usually like, I, sometimes I'll actually say to the person, do you need encouragement right now or can I just cut to the chase? And then they usually say cut to the chase because they, they think that's the right answer, but then when I do, they're like, I should have asked for encouragement rather. I even do that with students. You know, I have students sending... Um, sermons and I'm supposed to critique them and I say to them are you in a place in your ministry where you're being really you know harassed and just need encouragement or do you want me to actually help you fix how badly you're preaching right now (laughs) and they're like no no just just give it to me and then afterwards they're like maybe I should have asked you to be a bit more encouraging too so I'm not the right person to ask that but but the reason I'm like that is because I had been I had gone to real believers before I was saved and asked them legitimate questions, and they were so afraid of offending me that they never actually gave me the answer. Um, and then when I heard the gospel preached powerfully and directly, and I, I had a pastor that was willing to answer my questions in a way that should have been highly offensive to me, I, I just embraced it and got saved. So <laughs> I was like, that, that's the medicine I needed, that's the medicine I give. Good question, though. Logan. Yeah, I have a question about predisposition in regard to when a term is Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, what Logan's asking about there is in 
um, in Luke 10, the, the parable that we mentioned there, um, the answer about the, the degrees of punishment and how much of that was fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, because the, the injunction that Jesus gives, the warning is that when the master of the vineyard comes back and you know, punishes the unfaithful servants, the vineyard will be given to others. And so that's true that in the parables, a lot of the parables, the overarching theme of them is the nature of the kingdom that was being presented to Israel. And when Israel rejected the kingdom, it was going to be given to the Gentiles. Now, I don't think the people hearing the parable at the time were putting that together yet. That was, quite a, that was a mystery that was going to be revealed. Um, but now, in retrospect, we can see that. Yes, definitely. Even the, the parable of the mustard seed, how the, the kingdom starts small, it doesn't come in a big wave like they were expecting the Messiah to come with this political power, but it starts small, Jesus and his disciples, and the 120, and the 3,000, and the 5,000, and eventually it grows into this big um, shrub that all of the birds of the air can come make their nests, and it'll take over the whole world, and even the Gentiles will be able to come in. So I, I do think that the prophecy, uh, that the parable um, may have been fulfilled, these, these woes to Chorazin and Bethsaida, in that the destruction of the temple was kind of the punctuation point that says, okay, now we're done with Israel um, as, as a nation and we're going to start the church in, in, in Pentecost, of which Jews can now be part of, but it's not going to the nation. So yes, I, I, I think you're right there. I think when we're drawing application from it, though, it's not wrong for us to say those principles that were being applied to Israel are also applied um, to us. Great question. Yes, Tremaine. Okay, let me, let me try to summarize. Tell me if I, I understood you right. So you're, you're asking about uh, the concept that we just learned that the more you know, the more accountable you are. So how do we apply that to a situation where, for example, we're getting um, the Bible into the language of people that don't have the Bible yet? So for example, in, in, let's say in China, there's a certain dialect and they get the Bible into that dialect and missionaries go in and now share the gospel with those people. Well, now they, now they know more than they knew before and so now they're more accountable. Is that kind of what you're asking? Oh, oh, you're talking about how they're actually corrupting the... the okay, I see. Um, I'll answer both questions. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so what you're saying is they're corrupting the scriptures and they're uh, um, portraying Jesus as a sinner and then they're distributing those, yeah. So that, I mean, that is, that's a, that to me is a case of the, the warning that Jesus gives about the millstone, where it says, you know, if you lead one of these little ones astray, um, you will be judged very highly for that. And better, better that you just tie a millstone around your neck and jump in the sea and die right now than have that punishment added to everything else. Because in a sense, there is almost nothing worse you can do to somebody than to, to teach them false doctrine that keeps them from Jesus. That's the worst thing you can ever do to somebody. Um, because even, 
we think of the worst thing you can do to somebody is hurting them or killing them, but that's, that's nothing if they're a believer. But if you lead them into error that keeps them from Jesus, that now affects their eternity. So, I mean, I, I, the way I would just view that is those people who do that will be held accountable for that. Um, but also the people that are victims of that, you know, there's many people that live and die without ever hearing about the gospel. And so that just may be one of the ways that that is applied to their life, that they hear the wrong gospel, they only ever hear the wrong gospel, which is very sad, which is why we need to be more proactive about getting the scriptures in people's hands for themselves. And then the, the question you didn't ask, that I thought you did, because <laughs> um, I have heard people say, well, if it's true that if a person's knowledge goes up, their accountability goes up, maybe a more loving thing for us to do is to not give them as much knowledge, um, because then the accountability does go up. But, uh, of course, that's opposite of what the Bible says we should do. The Bible says we do need to proclaim the truth and to um, go into all nations, baptizing them and making disciples and teaching them all that I taught you. Um, so we just need to trust that that is better for them. And also, the best thing for a person is not that they live and die without hearing about Jesus, but that they hear about Jesus and have the opportunity to repent. Yes, those who hear about Jesus and reject him will have a worse judgment. But the flip side of that is, well, now people are hearing about Jesus, so there's an opportunity to not reject him, but to believe in him. So, good question you didn't ask. Um, <laughs> Good. Uh, I think we've got five months left, so maybe one, one or two more. Yes, Deb. Ezekiel 37. Yeah, so the valley of the dry bones is, I don't think specific, uh, let me start off by saying I'm not very familiar with Ezekiel. I'm taking a class right at the moment with the latter prophets, so if you ask me in a few months' time, I'll give you a better answer. But, uh, so I don't know if that's talking about Israel specifically or not, but the, the vision of the valley of the dry bones is a prophecy, a vision given to Ezekiel. So what happens is there's all these bones in there, and then suddenly they come alive and they start moving around and then flesh comes on them. It doesn't actually happen, but it's a vision that he has. And what that's symbolizing is that um, God is the one who initiates the salvation of his people. And in that case, I think he's primarily speaking about Israel that ha has gone so apostate that they're like a bunch of dead bones, but that he hasn't abandoned them permanently, that he will renew them and clothe them. And it's, it's a parallel with the passage in um, Ezekiel 36 that talks about I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and cause you to walk in my statues. It's the same kind of thing. It's like, if I left you to yourselves, you would just be a cemetery of dead bones. But because I'm powerful enough, I can make even you and your, your deadness come alive again. Which is kind of what we see Paul say in Ephesians 2, happens to us Gentiles as well, it happens to anybody. Um, in Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses in, in which you once walked according to the prince of the power of the air and the sons of disobedience in that passage. Says, but God, being rich in his mercy, um, with the great love with which he loved us, caused us to be born again by grace you have been saved. So it's, it, those are good verses to show that God is the one that initiates our salvation and accomplishes it for us. Good question. Okay.
One more. Yes, Charlie. Yes, yeah, Tyre and Sidon are not treated the same way Sodom and Gomorrah, where they're, they're said that there's no, nobody from there is ever saved. Yeah, so I think that that's, uh, is it the Syrophoenician woman that comes to, to him, the Canaanite woman that comes um, while he's in that area? And yeah, so we do see that. We also see the, the woman that asks um, for help. Is that where Jesus says, um, I've come to, to take care of Israel? And then she says, yes, but even the, you know, I'm not going to give it to the dogs. And she says, but even the dogs eat the scraps. And then he says, she's got great faith. So we do see glimpses of Gentiles coming in. Um, even the centurion is the same thing. I've seen faith in the centurion that I have not even seen in Israel. Yeah, Any, which is a way of showing that anyone can be saved. You didn't even have to be an Israelite. Yeah, you had your hand up and then we're done. Yeah, okay, so to, okay, so to summarize the question, at work sometimes when someone finds out that he's a Christian, they'll debate him, they'll, they'll draw the discussion to homosexuality, and then it comes down to if somebody's arguing the way you say they are from Scripture, that the texts in the Bible against homosexuality are actually only condemning pedophilia and not homosexuality, um, I mean, that's an argument I've heard. It's, uh, and, and the reason is because in their culture, homosexuality was not as um, prevalent in society in forms other than pedophilia, where boys were being um, abused, which was very common in Greek society. Um, well, firstly, I mean, if you, uh, I'll, I'll give you the answer, but before I say that, when somebody is arguing with you from scripture that homosexuality is right, you're dealing with a false teacher. Okay, so bear that in mind and don't get sucked into a debate that you can't win because even winning the debate is not going to win the person's soul. If a person is so far gone that they're trying to defend a sin that God has called abominable by using God's word, I mean, the only... <laughs> We see examples of that Satan using God's word to try to get Jesus to sin. Um, you're now dealing with a level of ferocity of a wolf pretending to use sheep's clothing to, to blend in here and try to get you at your own game. 
I wouldn't get sucked into that. I know it can be tempting if, because you're like, oh, I know the answer to that, but you have to kind of sidestep the issue and, and think to yourself, if I win this debate and give them the information that, that proves them wrong in this one argument, are they going to become a believer in Jesus Christ? And if, the, if, there's, if a person genuinely is struggling with something and they're like, there's just this one thing and this one verse I just can't get over, I will spend all day talking to them about that verse. But usually it's not that this is the thing keeping them from salvation. It's like they, they're just unbelievers and they're trying to mess with you. And in, the, in cases like that, I would just, I have no problem saying to the person, man, these, these issues are so complicated. I can tell that you've studied so much on them or whatever. I just know that I really love the Lord and he convicts me of when I'm doing things that are sinful and uh, what do you do with your sin? Like, how do you feel? You know, I get into a gospel because once a person believes the gospel, all those arguments just disappear, you know. So that's, that's what I would say to handle that practically. But in, when it comes down to the actual textual argument they're using, there is a word that Paul uses in Timothy when he, says, when he talks about homosexuals there. And it's a Greek word, arsikonoitos, which literally means, I mean, I don't want to be too graphic, but it's a very, very graphic term that, has to, that means sodomy. And it, it's not limited to children and abuse. It's any kind of sodomy. So um, that is outlawed, at least there. Um, and I mean, in Leviticus, it says, if a man lies with another man as he would lie with a woman, that's the abomination. So there's no like, oh, they in their culture. Any, any argument that comes, especially in the New Testament, this happens, any argument that starts off, well, well, in their culture, that's what he was writing against. But in our culture, it's okay. You know, it's like, n no, no, sin is sin, it's always sin, and our culture is wrong. 